from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odeschalet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Dwayne Herman on December 7, 2015. Amazingly, Dwayne, who loved books, had dyslexia and wasn't able to read for the first two years in school. Despite his disability, he pursued a life of books and became a prolific author of articles and short stories. Some of his writing include the history of the Baha'i faith in Kansas, where he lives. He reveals the amazing fact that Enterprise Kansas is the second Baha'i community established west of Egypt in 1897. He shares with us a number of his writings during the interview. I started the interview by asking Duane where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up on a farm in southeast Shawnee County, Kansas, and it was... For me, personally, pretty isolated because there were no other kids around. And I didn't see any other kids. I mean, I saw other kids when I went to Sunday school, but they were all town kids because we went to church in town. And I didn't see any other kids until I enrolled in first grade because we didn't have kindergarten then. I think I remember that first day being totally, totally bewildered. I mean, more kids than I'd ever imagined existing. And the teacher told me to sit with a nice bigger boy. And I think later he happened to be a cousin of mine who was a year older than me. The classroom was a combined first and second grade. And the teacher was brand new. And because it was a combined classroom, I had her the next year also in second grade. My mother felt that she had not done enough to teach me to read because I couldn't. But nobody at that time knew about dyslexia. So it was a struggle. But I did like books. We had a little collection of books in the back of the room. And there was one book that I still remember that was my favorite. It was about ground squirrels, I guess. And it showed a cutaway of their little house, uh, their, their home and their little burrows and the separate little rooms. For some reason, I just loved that. And every couple of weeks, we were supposed to clean out our desk. And the teacher found that book in my desk every time. And she said I needed to put it back in the library for other kids to look at. And I thought, but no. And so I would take it back very reluctantly at her insistence. And then the next day or so, I'd go get it because I loved that book. And I loved the teacher. She was very nice and very young. I would get construction paper and spend any free time I had making little hearts for her and giving them to her out of the construction paper. When I finally learned how to do that, I thought it was absolutely amazing that you cut this thing that didn't look anything at all like a heart, and then you open it up and bingo, it was magic, it was a heart. And she protested quite often that I should not use so much paper and let it stay there so that the other kids could use it, and I didn't see any point in that at all. because I was so happy uh, with her. But I didn't learn to read. Reading was very difficult. Just the other day, remembered 
something something in my my writing group about commas and periods oh 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 yeah yeah because now the style has gone to having just one space at the end of a sentence and to me that's hard to see the end of a sentence and then i realized that when i was starting to try to read commas and periods were totally incomprehensible and i remember now that in one book where there was a period i went through in my own spare time so that I could be prepared to stop reading at the end of the sentence. So I drew a little stop sign on the top of every period throughout that page. So when it came to be my turn, I would stop reading and take a breath at the end of the sentence. It still didn't help. Sometime at the end of second grade or after that, my aunt, who was eight years older than me, so she's more like a little big, big sister, suggested that they ask the retired school teacher who lived at the end of the mile that we lived on out in the country if she would teach me how to read. She had been retired a few years. The idea of having just one child was attractive to her. I would walk by myself down this empty, hot road a mile and up her long driveway because it was well set back off the road. Her house absolutely fascinated me. She was unmarried and lived with her unmarried sister, and they lived with their mother in this 100-year-old farmhouse. And all of the furniture in it was from the 20s, 30s, or 40s when the two girls had started teaching and earning money. And yet it was all in museum condition because there were no children there. All of the furniture in all the families that I knew, which was my grandparents and aunt and uncles, all the furniture was old and used and worn because I made it old and used and warm in my playing and, and nothing was new anyway. So it was a, like being in a museum and she was older than any of my grandparents. So she was incredibly old. She had these little cards with squiggles on them. And I've written about that. I forget which book now called Adventures with Squiggles. And she would hold up a card, and then she would make these exaggerated expressions with her face to make individual sounds. And I had never encountered individual sounds by themselves. At first, I thought she was absolutely ridiculous because she didn't sound like she was talking. She was just making ah, ooh, eh, eh, you know, pieces of words. I wanted to laugh at her because it was so ridiculous. But she was so sincere, I didn't want to upset her because she was so nice. I would be sitting on her old couch, just amazed that it was so new, looking up at her, and she'd be bending over, standing in front of me, bending over, bending down with this card and making these motions with her mouth and saying these weird things and encouraging me to replicate them. I felt totally lost and ridiculous, but I, I did try. I'm sure she said, you can do it, Duane, you can do it. And eventually I did, although I never really felt like I was quite making her sounds. But she did make the effort work worthwhile for me because at the end of every session, and I don't know how long they went. They seemed very long at the time. She would give me, when I left, a sugar cookie that was bigger than my hand. And so to me, that was pretty huge. I would eat the sugar cookie when I left her house and invariably a little bit past her driveway, like just I just turned out of her driveway and walked maybe 10 or 20 feet. The cookie was gone. And I would stand there with this dilemma. The cookie was gone. 
I wanted more cookie. And yet to get more cookie, I'd have to walk all the way back to her house. And that was a long driveway or else I'd just walk all the way home. I never went back to get another cookie. I always just went on home because I didn't know what she would do if I asked for another one. And I certainly didn't want to upset her because she was so nice. So I just walked on the rest of the way home. And by the end of the sessions, and I don't know how long they went. It seemed to me like they went on all summer, but I'm sure they didn't. I was able to read. So then I was reading in third grade. And then by the fifth grade, nearby university had a contest for children. If you read 25 books in a year, you got a, a silver sticker. And if you read 50, you got a gold sticker, or maybe it was 50. I don't know how many books. Anyway, I read twice as many as you needed to for a gold sticker. And I didn't understand why I didn't get two gold stickers because I'd done twice as much, but that was not part of the rules. So I've been reading ever since. I guess I'm insatiable because I read grocery sacks and other assorted things that most people don't read. But I have realized that thanks to her, she gave me a life that, that's functional. I still have difficulty sometimes. And, and, and sometimes when I'll look at a word, and it hasn't happened for the last couple of decades, I don't know how long, when I'm, I'll, I'll look at a word and I'll just see a jumble of letters and then I'll have to close my eyes and let my brain sort it out. And then I can go on reading. When I was investigating her life, which was not too long ago, I discovered that she lived past the time I enrolled in college. And I hope that someone told her that I had gone to college because that would have been very, very exciting for her to learn. I never saw her after that summer. I regret now, and I certainly wish I'd thought about hunting her down when I went to college, but she was so far out of my life by that time, I never thought about her, and she was in a rest home, although now I have found where she's buried in her obituary and written a little information to write a little sketch of her life because her role was so important to me. And when I first became Baha'i and learned the stature of teachers, the respect that Baha'u'llah says should be given to teachers, I thought of her and regretted that I had never been able to do anything to thank her for that experience because it made, it gave me a different life. Now, I want to ask you when you started writing. I started writing before I could read because writing is not only putting it down on paper. It is making up the story. I began making up stories when I was probably three or four because I was the only kid in the family. My sister came along next, but she was two years younger. Until she was two or three, I couldn't play with her. So I was alone. We would have family dinners at my grandparents pretty regularly, uh, maybe once a month. I don't know now. There was nobody else to play with, so I would entertain myself. And my grandparents had helped some friends move. They had had kids. For some reason, some of the stuff in the transition ended up in my grandparents' basement. And some of it were old comic books. So these were original Mickey Mouse, original Superman I mean, they'd be worth thousands now, but nobody thought, thought of that then. But I couldn't read anyway. So the one that I was fascinated with, and I don't know how many there were, but it, it had 
little bugs as the main characters. And these little bugs lived in gardens. The flowers were giant trees, and they lived in broken, overturned teacups. And it just fascinated me to have little beings like I was a little being. I would look at the pictures, and I could follow the story in the pictures. Often I, I, I wanted the stories to continue, but but I would go to sleep down there in the basement because my grandparents had a bed down there because that was near the wood-burning furnace, and they would sleep there in the wintertime because it was warmer. And so I'd get the books out, comic books out on the bed, spread them out, and look at them and curl up and often fall asleep. I remember, I sort of remember, that one time I dreamt about the comic book. I dreamt about the little creatures in the comic book. And when I woke up, I didn't want the dream to end. I didn't want the story to end. So I made up my own ending. I don't know when I made up the next stories, but all of my childhood that I can remember, I made up stories at night to myself to put myself to sleep. Sometime in there, my sister, we had the same bedroom, she couldn't go to sleep, so I began telling stories to her. And I'd forgotten about this until not too long ago. But when I was in the fourth grade, I managed to create a separate sleeping space for myself in a storage room. And my sister still wanted to hear the stories. And so I tried to tell them around the corner, across the landing from my room to hers. And our mother heard us and made me stop. So that was the end of my storytelling. And I didn't remember that until a couple of years ago. I was talking with her, and she said she still missed those stories, and and then I remembered them. Oh, that's so, sweet. So I've always made up stories. And then in the fifth grade, I do remember that I wrote down the first one in a little notepad, which I, I think I still have because I've kept a few things, although I haven't seen it for several decades. So basically all my life, when I was little, I knew that reading was important, and I knew that I couldn't, and my mother couldn't or wasn't able to read to me as much as I wanted, and so I wanted to write stories to be important. That was always my goal, even before I could read or write, and now that I write stories, she's interested in some and not interested in others of what I write. So it's been my self-identity my whole life. Now, Dwayne, when did you become a Baha'i? In 1969, when I was 17, a few weeks before my 18th birthday, when I was a freshman at Washburn University here in Topeka, I had left home to attend Washburn, and I actually attended my first fireside on the same weekend that Neil Armstrong walked on the moon. I needed a ride home. I couldn't use the car to go. The person who, who gave me the ride home was amazed at the technology we had. He was a generation older. I was not amazed at all because I said, well, yeah, we're going to the stars. We're going to live on the moon and Mars. What's the big deal? I mean, it's taken us a while, but yeah. He was just amazed that I was so casual about it. Dwayne, how did you run into the Baha'is? There was a display at a fair booth the year that I was first allowed to go explore the local fair by myself. And I was probably 13, and I was interested in, in church and religion because I did not like the confusion and the conflict I saw between religions. And I decided that I didn't want anything to do with all that, that 
there might be that seemed logical to me that if I went back in time to an earlier religion, closer to creation, closer to when God was actively involved on the planet, then I would find a religion that was more pure. And so I began reading the old encyclopedias in my classroom, which had been the library of the old high school. And I was reading about the Hittite and Assyrian and Babylonian religions. And all that was fascinating until I got to the part of the infant sacrifices to appease the gods. And I said, nope, that's no good. So I stopped that. I saw this display and I couldn't read the word Baha'i or Baha'u'llah. But the buildings looked religious, and I was very, very attracted to finding out more. But there was a little lady behind the table in front of the display, and she kept winking her eye at me, and that just kind of creeped me out. And so I didn't learn any more about it. And later then, I had declared and met her and realized it was a twitch in her eye that only happened when she was excited and she could tell I was interested so she got excited so she was winking at me so it scared me so I ran away (laughs) then later when I enrolled in summer school right after high school I had an English a comp one class I would write things in my papers that caused the teacher to make comments so we had sort of a dialogue going back and forth one day he asked me if I would like an invitation And not wanting to be rude, I said, sure, and whatever. And after class, he gave me an invitation to a fireside, which I went to. I opened it and saw the word Baha'i and said, what's this? And went to the dictionary, read the definition there, and decided I didn't like the dictionary definition. That it must be better than that. Then I went to the fireside, and as I approached the building, I could see the light coming out of it, but it seemed more than just light bulb light. It seemed like the only way I can describe it is golden love, which I grappled with for quite a while. And during the meeting, it was somebody, it was a, a guy who had been drafted and he had come back from Vietnam and was telling stories about his experiences there. The ones that really didn't uh, match up with war stories in the news. But most of the time, I kept looking at the House of Worship, figuring out the angles of the nine sides. This was the Baha'i House of Worship in Wilmette, Illinois. And it's nine-sided and three levels, but the uh, sides are not aligned with each other. The top two are centered in the middle of the bottom sides. And I didn't realize then that I grew up looking at that building Because in 1956, my mother and my grandmother, her mother-in-law, went on a farm wives tour of Chicago, and they were taken to the house of worship. And my mother made movie trips of her trip because dad was in the Navy Reserves and he made movies of his trips. And so we saw these movies once or twice a winter if we could persuade daddy to show them. And none of us knew what the building was. It was a gray overcast day. But she took pictures because she went there. And when I made my first trip in 1970, I was describing the building. And she turned to me and she said that she'd been there in total surprise. And then she said she thought it was Jewish. And I said, no, it's not Jewish. And I eventually wrote an article about the houses of worship of the 20th century and how their designs evolved from looking like a mosque 
the very first one in Russia, to at that time, the most recent one in India, in New Delhi, which like looks like a lotus blossom. All of them have nine sides. All of them have interior space that is, I almost want to say unadorned, and yet in Wilmette, it's the design of the building itself. There's no altar or pulpit or things like that. And when I gave a presentation to a, a group of Christian ministers saying that there was no clergy in the Baha'i faith, it was prohibited, and preaching was forbidden in the house of worship, and pulpits were forbidden, they just all gasped because that was their entire life. And that was, my point was to show them that a religion can exist without preachers. And around them, each one is the centerpiece of, a, of an institution that will consist of a university and hospital and orphanage and other facilities for community service. So, so they will epitomize Baha'u'llah's teaching about work being worship and service being worship at the same time. So it will regenerate society, Baha'is believe. And I, I certainly do, do feel that will happen. So, Dwayne, you said you were at the fireside and you were like focusing on the angles of the House of Worship instead of listening to the talk. Right, because they had a large picture. It was a brand new picture, I guess, of the building. It was right underneath the speaker, so I could look like I was looking at the speaker and then looking up at the building. I did remember some of his stories, but what really impressed me afterwards was that people asked about me, and they were generally interested in me, not in other members of the family. That was in uh, June, I think. And then in November, there was a proclamation week in Topeka. These Baha'is had come from Emporia, which is about uh, 45 minutes away. And some of them came back to see a film, which was a new Baha'i film called A New Wind. The couple, they were leaving the building from a different entrance and a different sidewalk, and they said goodbye to me across the lawn, and she used my name. And I was struck that she remembered my name and struck that she even bothered to consider it. And so that night, this was like the 9th of the 12th of November after the holy day of the birth of Baha'u'llah then. So I laid in bed. The fact that she bothered to remember my name, the fact that she cared enough to say goodbye when she could have just left, got me to thinking. And I, I realized that Baha'is believe this and so and this and so and this on one hand, and that I believed this same thing and that same thing and this same thing and that same thing, and that my beliefs were the same as the beliefs of the Baha'is, and that I was a Baha'i, and huh. So I laid there for a while, and, and I couldn't get to sleep, and finally got up and went looking for a phone because there was no phone in the room I was renting, and I had to go walking out on the streets finding a phone. The first one I found was broke. The second one worked, and I called the Baha'i, and I have no idea what time it was at night. It was close to midnight, maybe. I don't know. I, I never even thought about that. But I called him and it said, I, and I didn't know what to say because nobody had said it was even possible for me to join the Baha'i community. Nobody said how to do it. And so I mumbled a few words and he got the message and said a word that I certainly didn't understand. And I said, well, I guess. Then he laughed and we discussed that my next step would be to sign a declaration card to let the National Spiritual Assembly know that I was willing to 
be a member of the Baha'i community and that I believe Baha'u'llah's teachings. Shortly, a few weeks or a month after this, word got back to my family that I had become involved in this group of people. And I had an uncle who seriously instructed me, don't sign anything. I could honestly tell him that I wouldn't. I just didn't tell him that I already had. So I wasn't lying. Anyway, some people rocked their family boats and I sank several of mine, but things have changed over the decades when I graduated, cut my hair and had got married and had a family and got a respectable job in a school district. Then things were fine. And then my younger brother decided he also was a Baha'i and that shot things out of the water again. But things have gotten back gradually as he also did those normal things that our family expected us to do. That was a long time ago. <laughs> but that's really a great story. It's a great story. I'd like to get into some of your writings, Dwayne. And what I'd like to do is start with your more recent ones and then sort of work backwards, see how much time we've got. I want to first talk about your work on the hidden meanings in the poetry of Robert Hayden. What inspired you to produce this work and I don't know if you have an excerpt you'd like to share with us. Actually, I didn't even think about bringing that one, but he's my hero. And I really regret that I never wrote to him. I could have, but I thought he was far and beyond my level of existence. His work spoke to me and the conditions that he overcame uh, spoke to me. I mean, our lives were very similar in the home chaos and violence, not being able to see, uh, although he wasn't dyslexic, so he didn't have that, but he had race to overcome. And so it resonated with me. And I'd read everything I could get my hands on about him. There were, there were several bio, full-length biographies. All of them missed most of the Baha'i references or allusions in his work. And I felt uh, John Hatcher did touch on some of them, but only slightly. And I felt it deserved more than that, because there were many references that you wouldn't know unless you thoroughly knew the Baha'i teachings. In uh, Aunt Jemima of the Ocean Waves, I believe it is, I'm sure it is, she's talking about being told, Aunt Jemima was talking about being told not to mess with that spiritual stuff, referring to seances and things like that. While the Baha'i teachings say that the next world is valid and it is a part of our existence, it is real, it is true, this realm is not the one to force interaction or contact with that world. It will be a natural unfolding part of each person's evolution when it happens. And there are times when we will be able to cross the veil between them, so to speak. And when those happen, just let them happen. Don't be scared of them, but don't force them. And Abdu'l-Baha, in portrayals of some early Baha'is, talks about visiting the, the souls of these Baha'is after they had died and says it's a normal thing, but we don't force it. If a reader doesn't know that, they won't know what Hayden is talking about. Right. So Abdu'l-Baha is the son of Baha'u'llah, 
the prophet yes, founder. Baha'u'llah bestowed upon him headship of the faith after his passing to keep the faith unified after his 1892, passing. and he lived till 1921. So anyway, that that's just the one I can half off of my off the top of my head, and I think it may become available as an ebook through Word Branch Press. I've sent it to them. But I haven't heard back, but then I know the editor's been having some upheavals in her life, so I'm just kind of waiting to hear from them. But I, I think she will like it because Word Branch has a series of books called The Befuddled Person's Guides, and one of them is The Befuddled Writer's Guide to Commas. So Robert Hayden is a little more substantial than just commas, although commas are fascinating, and I've my writing group has had endless hours uh, discussing commas, and I am convicted of being comma excessive. And I say, well, I have a comma shaker right there beside me, and I just shake them over the poem because I like them. They're like decorations for me. And they say, no, Duane, they're not decorations. They have a use, each one of them, and you have to be careful of them so you don't misuse them. But I still like my commas. Very nice. Very nice. All right. So let's Let's go with the next one here, Sweet Scented Streams. Ah, that is a collection of, <laughs> which, which I also didn't bring, I didn't bring any poetry, of, of what I think may be devotional-oriented poems, because uh, the guardian of the Baha'i faith, the head of the faith after Abdu'l-Baha, said in a little-known paragraph that at every meeting, Baha'is should have poetry, and yet there are not collections of poetry for Baha'is to be able to use for those. And so I collected 18 of my more devotional kinds of things, or I, I would think, into a little booklet. And on the cover of it, there's a photograph of my creek in my part of the country, which is also on a website that I don't remember the name of. If anyone does a, an internet search for Duane L. Herman, they will find lots of stuff, and there's other stuff without the L. There's many things out there that I managed to grab some prose, but I didn't think about poetry at all. Why don't you pick the next work in which you have an excerpt? <laughs> it's About Living is a compilation. Durham Editing and eBooks, they do editing for people and publish eBooks, but this is an exceptional work that they initiated, I think, just to help people get published. Anyway, I heard about it. Because of the title, they wanted a, a theme tying everything together. And so they asked each author to finish the sentence, it's in the living. I basically went into the purpose of living is to interact with others so that we can grow and we can help others grow. Then I went on saying that all the messengers of God have taught this and talked a little bit about Abraham uniting the family, and Moses uniting and organizing tribes, and then city-states and nations came next, and now Baha'u'llah is saying that the whole world should be united, and has given us instructions to help us do that. Humans are a reasoning species, and we create things which is part of our image of God, the Creator, and we need to be nice to each other. We have to take care of each other not dominate. I have three pieces in here. One is composed of letters my father sent from the South Pacific, where he was on a salvage ship 
at Bikini Atoll when they did atomic bomb testing. It's seeing history from the bottom up because the seamen on the ship, the just ordinary guys, were kept totally ignorant of what they were involved in. They were told the, ra- the word radioactive, but it meant nothing to them. And in his letters, he says it as two words because he knew what a radio was and he knew what active was. The two together made no sense. So radioactive was remained two words. And I told about my great-grandfather, who I knew, who I'm sure I got my love of the German language from because he came over by himself when he was 16. And at the end of that, which is my life basically from age 2 to 13, then I learned about the Baha'i faith and accepted it. Baha'u'llah does not expect results. I don't want to say it that way, but it's, it's the effort. I mean, I, growing up, I had to produce results, and these results had to be very specific and very accurate, and it was very difficult because they were adult results and I was not an adult. One of the things that just overwhelmed me about Baha'i was that Baha'u'llah just asked for effort. God takes care of the results, and as long as you're doing the effort with a pure heart and no thought of reward, that's all that God asks. I know how to make effort. I mean, I could do that easy. Just doing it for the love of God, then God will take care of the rest, and we don't have to worry about it. What do you have next to share? The next one is, is another collection of theirs. Most of it's fictional stories. I have three in here. One of them is Adventures with Squiggles, about learning to read. Dwayne, what's the title of the work? Oh, the title of the work is Summer Shorts 2 Best Kept Secrets. And both of these are available from Amazon.com or Create Space, but they're cheaper from Amazon, and I don't really understand that. We were supposed to answer the theme of what is the secret to great writing. I said is to touch the heart of a, the reader in a meaningful or uplifting way. And so I have Adventures with Squiggles, I learned to read, and then I have My First Trip, which is about the first time I ran away from home which I did pretty constantly. And then I had a fictional story called My Place in the Woods. The entire story turns on a statement of Baha'u'llah's that is given to the main character. It helps him make a decision in his life. So, Dwayne, do you have an excerpt you'd like to share with us from that work? Yeah, this guy, who is very much like me, has finally, after saving and saving and saving, become the owner of a little piece of woods. So it's called a place in the woods. It regenerates him. He likes going out there. But in this story, which is not my life, he was offered a very prestigious job in a city in the desert. And his mother is really urging him to take it because it would increase her status among her friends. And so he's torn about this. I'll just read just a little bit here. The indecision tormented him for the next days. Friends were excited at this opportunity for him and urged him to accept the new job. You're crazy not to, some even said. One, though, understood his love for the woods and sympathized. That Friday, before the Monday, when he needed to confirm with his new employer, Derek found a card on his desk with a brief note, just one sentence, but written in calligraphy and decorated with leaves, vines, and flowers. And the sentence said, The country is the world of the soul. The city is the world of the bodies. This was followed by a word, 
Derek thought it might be a name, one he could not read, but began D-A-H-A. Derek knew who the card was from and smiled. He would have thanked her then, but he knew that she would not be at work. The day was a holy day for her, and she had spoken of some observance she would be attending. Derek placed the card where he could see it all day and no one else would notice. By the end of the day, he knew his answer and his heart was calm. After work, he drove directly from the office to the woods. He sometimes did this if he desperately needed the peace of the woods. That day, his heart was filled with joy he could not contain. As soon as he parked, Derek jumped out of the car, ran to the top of the hill in his woods, and with his arms flung open to the heavens, he shouted, Thank you, thank you, thank you, God. And he twirled around. That day was not only a holy day for his friend, it was now a holy and sacred day for him as well. He knew he was not going anywhere, no matter what the supposed advantage. Money and prestige were not his highest goals. How can he give up this place, his place, in the world of the soul? His heart was at rest for the first time in months. Nice. So what's the next thing you have to share for us? Well, I brought a little opportunity that of the kind of thing that seems to come my way without me expecting it. And I try to utilize them to the best way possible. Off and on through my life, I've been involved in an organization called Kansas Authors Club. It was start, started in 1904 by professional writers in Kansas and has now come to embrace people who haven't published anything, but who want to, to encourage them. When I went to the very first meeting, I had at that time published about a half a dozen things. And I was very shy and embarrassed, hesitant to go, but they'd advertised in the paper and they said they were welcoming people to attend. So I went, I took this little list, hoping to show them that, that I wanted to be serious about writing. I tried to look for somebody I could show this little list to. And I found a sympathetic face. We eventually became great friends. And I showed her my little list, sort of an apology. She said two things, which essentially changed my life again. She said, that list didn't happen by itself. You did it. And not everybody here has a list like that, which absolutely stunned me because I thought they were all major writers. Her support encouraged me, and I don't remember what year that was. It was in the 80s, I'm sure. Anyway, that little list of, of a half a dozen things is now the last time I printed it, I think about 18 pages long, double-spaced, mostly, of stuff that I've printed or been quoted in or cited or whatever. Anyway, in 2002, this organization had its centennial, and I happened to be a member again for their centennial year. To celebrate that year, they decided that each member of the organization could contribute one piece, whatever they wanted to, to this compilation called Our Way with Words. And the editor lived in Junction City, Kansas, which is not very far from Enterprise, Kansas, which was involved in the very first Baha'i classes in Kansas in 1897, which gives Kansas the second Baha'i community west of Egypt. Chicago was first, Enterprise was second. When I was telling that at one Baha'i retreat, somebody raised their hands and said, you mean 
Egypt, Egypt? And I said, yeah, that Egypt. So I wrote about this centennial because we had just done the centennial in 97. So it was still very fresh in my mind. And I want to let people know that it's not a new thing in Kansas. And when I have talked to people about that, I can see the wheels turning in their head because Baha'i, for most of my life, was a strange-sounding thing to most people in Kansas. And yet, when I talked about it being here a century, or before that, nearly a century, they struggled with that because it was new and maybe weird, but no, weird things don't last a hundred years in Kansas. So they couldn't quite know what to do with it. So that's one reason that I'm trying to promote among Baha'is to let people know your local history, your state history, and find that out yourself because we go back a lot longer than most people realize, and it gives people reasons to think about it. This lady, the editor, was thrilled with my topic because it was set in Enterprise, because it was so close to her. During our centennial, there were articles in newspapers all across the state. Her city specifically went back a 100 years to the old newspapers and found those newspaper articles that were in the Junction City newspapers in 1897 and reprinted them in 1997 because they had a column 100 years ago, 50 years ago, 25 years ago. And so this stuff fit right up their alley and they ate it up. And, and related to this, anybody can go online to the Kansas State Historical Society webpage, website, and they have a section called Kansapedia, based on you can guess what. And there's a search box, and if you put in Baha'i, B-A-H-A-I, you'll find the articles that I have there, nine so far. Some of them are on this. Two are on two Kansans who... Uh, became members of the international governing body, the Universal House of Justice. One was born in Kansas and uh, moved away when he was 11. He was just a typical Kansas farm boy. And the other came to Kansas in about 1950-something, four or five. And he created the Department of Medical Instruction at the University of Kansas, and he pioneered the use of filming medical procedures for instructional value for other people. So he's very well known, and his brother teaches at Kansas University until just a few years ago. So they're part of, of Kansas history. So having two, there's nine members on this body, and for about 25 years, two of those were claimed by Kansas because they lived here. And I found that just absolutely fascinating. At this point in the interview, Duane starts telling the interesting story of how it happened that the first Baha'i classes were started in 1897. I talk about the reason how the classes happened to be in Kansas, that a young lady from Enterprise who had musical talent had been sent to Chicago for more education because there was more in Chicago than there was in Enterprise. While there, at least according to the newspaper, she became attracted to these teachings, and she knew her, her mother was interested in other alternative religions because, uh, 
Well, her brother was a preacher and eventually had to expel her from the church because she wasn't satisfied with what she was hearing in church. So the daughter, our name was Josephine, wrote home to Mama about this teacher. Mama invited the teacher to come to Kansas for vacation and wanted to teach her. So he had classes in her parlor and they invited the, because Mama, her husband was the founder, the two of them, both of them were founders of the town of Enterprise. Although the way history was written, written then, her role was minimized, but she, she was involved there. And so she was in the upper, upper, she was the upper crust of town at the second fanciest house in town. They invited other upper level social people like the postmaster and his wife. And one who came to her class was a prominent Kansas politician who had deserted the Republican Party for the Populist Party, and people were upset with him. But his attending the class created a lot of attention because he created a lot of attention. And then Mama of the young lady, her brother attended. He had been a state senator. So it was big news. And I have found over 50 references or direct articles about this in newspapers all across Kansas, from Kansas City to Hutchinson and and I think even Hayes. So it was a big tempest in a little teapot in 1897. Would you want to share an excerpt? I close it with the centennial celebration in 1997. In 1997, the Baha'is of Kansas came to Enterprise to celebrate their centennial birthday. For that day, the population of Enterprise increased by one-third, and that was the the Baha'is. The celebration included a parade, a brief historical sketch, dramatic skits, historic tours, and an art exhibit. Baha'is from far away as Florida and New York attended, and I forgot the one from Australia. Two special guests were Kansas Baha'is who had also been former members of the International Baha'i Council at the Baha'i World Center in Haifa, Israel. One was a native Kansan born near Winfield. The other had been a professor at the KU Medical Center. And then I could close. The Kansas has a rich history of alternative religious communities. Most of these have not lasted past the life of their founder. For the Baha'i community to not only survive but flourish is a noteworthy accomplishment. And that Kansas Baha'is have had an influence on the international Baha'i community up to the highest levels is laudatory. For over a century, Baha'is have brought honor to the state of Kansas Yet the state of Kansas has remained largely unaware. Perhaps this account will help to enlighten and inform those who may have heard of the Baha'i faith and wondered what Baha'is are doing in Kansas. And I do want to mention this newspaper because this this was so this parade was it was so funny. The the newspaper editor knew this was a big thing. When when you increase the size of a town by a third and you bring in food and house not housing but tent space for everybody. And we took over the community center for the for the art exhibit. And we were able to do all of this because it descended of one of the people involved who was president of the bank and very influential of the town, was very excited that we and I was interested in his family history. So he bent over backwards with the city council and got all kinds of things for us. So we had this parade. Everybody knew things were going on. And the newspaper photographed it. The front middle section of the newspaper was full of photographs of this event going on. But there was not one caption 
to any photograph, and there was no article explaining the reason for the parade because the editor did not want this non-Christian thing in his community. But he had to cover it because it was news. And there's one other thing I want to, to share. There is a, a short story that is on the internet that anybody can go look to. The website is Poetica, a journal of contemporary Jewish writing. The short story is called I Found You. It is based upon Baha'u'llah's teachings of what the next world would be like. It, I continued a short story that I'd read from someplace else about a little boy who dies and the excitement he finds in the next world. So, Duane, thank you so much for sharing your life and your work with us. Okay. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Duane Herman, author of articles and short stories that include the historical developments of the Baha'i faith in Kansas. You can find this interview and other interviews at www.abahaiperspective.com where I post some links to Duane's writings. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
as planes rise, cares descend from squatting in the dwelling of the friend, and open wounds of lifetime start to mend. No doubt. 
no, 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 no doubt. Differentiated the many ways to raise it. Cause losing the weight and the making only hurts where you wanna take it. I've been giving something I should hold sacred. And if I don't take it, then this opportunity goes wasted. It's so basic, the meaning is made with a gesture. Invaded from the West and demonstrated with aggression. Feel the trace of the weapon, it reiterates a message. A little bit of effort for the outline of session. It's now time to let it begin. Head to the wind. The second I stand, see less of a plan. It don't matter though. In that direction lies the answer, so you have to go. And for protection's sake, you never take the path and hold. Let the method make you lesson, then you'll be the last to know. Some of us have nothing, but a word will make us have it all. Pass it all. Time to focus now. That's what we spoke about. Scoping out the whole zone now. No doubt. No doubt. Time to mellow out. Mellow out. Dark space, a wave it in, vacillating half a day, wasted asking a favor of validation. A plate at the base, nature rate the arms in my low end, chrome plated and shown places they afraid to go in. A 21st century fox rocking the lambs, wore the song channel, the palm planted on the handle, the panel host supposedly channeled the Holy Ghost. I'm down with you, stand close and get your crown rose. You heard, sir, prefer a touch of swerving the verb. I learned respect come first and the chat come third. Now what's the worth of a bush full of birds? Took the one you don't snap. With every last one come when I clap It ain't with the front, but son, it's unpunished for that Seen it happen at the pinpoint, pushed in the map Travel the globe around, wrote it so I know what it's about Throw a spark and turn the cold as devout No doubt, no doubt Time to mellow out, wow, 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 wow yeah, I burn a few waiting on my turn in certitude, searching for a heaven ever since. Interring Gertrude with the pin, the worst of the dirge, and dreamt of the image of innocence. Intense, but forgive my indifference. There's something about I heard it before, you all the same. And I told her we never spoken, so you must be mistaken. I thought maybe she turned away for modesty's sake. Yet as she wept, I saw my name alone, the nape of her neck. For pardon, I pleaded. Evidently, she and I were friends with ten straps between this apparition and the one then. Would have been little more than a bench had I. I mentioned I'ma let feeling start creeping in the act reciprocated when the weight stack bent like a paperback get away the kid made tracks afraid to speak a name vaguely I recall the vegan faith let me hold out I'm moving slower now no doubt uh. Lost touch, but never lost hope. Found direction and respect for the presence. A crossroads, guilt gone. So will be the hill the house is built on. Matters not infinite. My sinner swimming the simmer on. Agent, they disintegrate. All the weaker dust, all the touch. Wait until the wind pick up. It's possibly your progeny in the gust. Blowing about when he show, pulling photos out. No doubt. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM. Your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.